Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia, and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the necessary shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, a counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor, and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. My normal partner in all things strategery, Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, is traveling, but he will report back on his travels uh, after Labor Day. But I'm pleased to have as our special guest and Shield of the Republic this week, Bill Crystal, the editor-at-large of The Bulwark and the founding editor-in-chief of the late Weekly Standard. Bill, welcome to Shield of the Republic. Thanks, Eric. Good to be with you. Good to be pinch-hitting for Elliot, and uh, it's good to see you. Well, it's, it's, it's great to have you sort of as we kind of reach the you know, end of the summer and heading into a, a very complicated and busy fall, uh, particularly on, on matters uh, affecting Ukraine. We will have a, a supplemental vote on additional funds for Ukraine. The United States has provided almost $40 billion worth of aid. The Biden administration is proposing an additional $24 billion in aid to Ukraine. And uh, the, it'll be interesting to see how that supplemental goes. I mean, there were 70 Republicans who have voted to strike aid for Ukraine from the budget in the House of Representatives. There's been a lot of discussion about this, including during the recent uh, debate in Milwaukee among Republican presidential candidates. So how do you see the the fight for the supplemental going, Bill? I mean, it it seems to me that this is going to be a bit of a Rorschach test for you know where people stand on conservative internationalism as a, a foreign policy among Republicans. Uh, but it's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty dicey situation. I mean, putting aside the question of whether we'll actually, you know, have a government shutdown or a budget or a continuing resolution, all of which would be problematic, just on the Ukraine side. I mean, as with all things congressional or many things congressional, it's it gets complicated because there will be some up or down votes on aid to Ukraine, you know, uh, either to strike it from uh, a, a, a supplemental or from an overall uh CR continuing resolution, which probably is how they end up with the end up passing on September 30th. Uh, that gets complicated because there are a million other issues in that CR that Republicans will or won't like Biden spending and abortion provisions, you can imagine. And the government could get shut down on any of those. And the Ukraine aid is kind of sitting out there. It could go separately on a supplemental, but could also be, be wrapped up in one thing. So I guess I would step back a little from the minutiae of the congressional stuff, which I don't have a great handle on. And say this, I'm, I mean, I'm very much of two minds. On the one hand, all things, if you had told me Trump runs on America first, Trump is president for four years, Trump is generally isolationist and doesn't care about enemies and generally pro-Putin. And hostile to Ukraine. And hostile to Ukraine and is impeached over his behavior on Ukraine and not convicted. And then January 6th happens, but Trump amazingly and terribly remains the leader of the Republican Party and uh, now is way ahead in the congressional, in the in the primary ballots, uh, balloting, and like the likely nominee. In a certain way, uh, the party is 
is better from my point of view, and I think yours, on Ukraine than one might have expected. You know, one might have just expected, okay, I guess the whole party is going to be, you know, America first, you know, uh, by uh, at this point. And in fact, it, the, either the, the kind of old fashioned strength of the Mitch McConnell, uh, Mike McCall wing of the party, the McCain, Romney, Bush wing, turns out there are people who still believe that, uh, or and or the drama of Ukraine, if I can put it that way, the kind of amazing character of what Putin has tried to do and has done, the brutality of it, the the uncomplicated good and evil question, frankly, all of that has cut the other way. And so I think we're in a very fluid situation. I was thinking about this before getting on the air here or getting on the, on the audio here with you. Uh, and you know, for most of our adult lives, um, the foreign policy lines were pretty well drawn and, and there were divisions between the parties, of course, there were divisions within the parties, no question, but they were fairly predictable. I mean, from year to year, you said there was a wing of the Democrats that was McGovernite, there was a wing of the Democrats that was Scoop Jacksonite, and there was an in-between group. And on the Republican side, there were a few people, and this especially maybe more so in the 90s and 2000s, who were kind of hard-headed, national interests, we shouldn't get involved in the Balkans, and then people like us who thought we should. And, but, you know, it was it was not, it didn't change that much every year, you might say, it wasn't that volatile. Uh, the balance of power was kind of fairly constant between these different wings. I do feel like now, in the last seven years, have been so unprecedented with Trump uh, that it's it's really hard to know where the momentum is. I mean, clearly on Ukraine, there was such a rallying to Ukraine after February twenty fourth of last year that there was huge support even among Republican members. That's faded some, no question. Partly just. War weariness, partly because the natural weight of the Trump wing of the party, so to speak, is, has, has just worn down some of the people who have started off in a good place. On the other hand, the polls still show the Republican electorate is kind of 50-50-ish, really. Republican House conferences, kind of 50-50-ish. Republican senators, better. And so I guess I'm mildly optimistic that after all the zigs and zags happen in September, the aid will be there for Ukraine. Then there'll be another vote probably in December if they go to an omnibus from the CR, if the CR only lasts for two or three months. I still think we'll be okay, but it's 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 worrisome. I think it's highly dependent on uh, events and progress in Ukraine will help, obviously, in the sense that it's not an endless war. Somewhat contingent on the presidential race, which on the one hand has been bad in the sense that Trump, DeSantis, and Ramaswamy, DeSantis being less bad than those other two, but not great, have what, 75% of the Republican electorate at this point? And, and the ones who were good in the debate the, the other night, Christie, uh, Haley, and Pence of 15%. So it's so, if it, in a way, given that it's that lopsided, things on the Hill are better than what might have expected, don't you think? I think that's fair. And the public opinion uh, element of this is worth sort of pausing on for a second, which is... I think public opinion overall, considering that we're 18 months into this now almost, has been relatively robust. And, you know, just anecdotally, I know that uh, when, you know, when I drive down to our place, you know, on the Eastern Shore, as you drive down, and a lot of that's Trump country, right? It's rural Maryland and, you know, rural, you know, Eastern Shore, Virginia. You see a lot of Ukrainian flags hanging from doorways, which, you know, frankly, when I first saw them kind of gobsmacked me, I was like, are you kidding? I mean, where, where did they even get these things? It's been relatively robust and pretty at the top line steady. But as you say, the kind of worrisome kind of troubling part has been 
pretty clear decline over time among Republicans to support. As you say, it's kind of split now, kind of nobody has a majority. It's really kind of split pluralities, you know, 48, 48, something like that, or low 40s maybe on each side, 10% who don't know. But it has declined, and and that is a bit worrisome because it looks like it could be normalizing a bit around the Trump, Ramaswamy sort of side of things. Now, you and our publisher, Sarah Longwell, have started a, an effort to bolster support for Ukraine uh, in the public with Re- Republicans for Ukraine. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What prompted you and how's it going and what are your plans? Happy to. I, I would just add to what you were saying, though. It is, it's so interesting because on the one hand, when you know, one looks at it in a sort of uh, level of congressional votes, and, you know, we've got to hang on. We've got to get them another $24 billion. At the level of, you've spoken about this eloquently, we've done conversations on it and written about it for the Bulwark. Um, and others have too. I mean, th- on the other hand, this is a huge moment in a way. I mean, and and you, the whole Putin's invasion and what's happening in Ukraine could be a defining moment for the 21st century. I think when you go to Europe, they, re- they feel that way. And they have certainly changed a lot. And uh, we've all argued, is it really a Zeitenwende in Germany or not? But I mean, it, it's big, I think. And it's big here. And incidentally, the Democratic Party, which no one talks about, has in fact changed, I think, a fair amount, partly because of Ukraine. I mean, if you had told us that they would be, you know, we have our quarrels with what they've done and they haven't quite been, they haven't been as, uh, they've been a little more cautious than we would recommend and so forth. But on this and other things, and China as well, even defense spending, where again, they're not quite where we are. Uh, this is not the McGovern Democrats, you know, it doesn't feel like it. So I think a lot is going on. There's a lot of moving parts. You know, Europe is a moving part. The Democratic Party is a moving part. The Republican Party is a moving part. For now, in the short term, the key for, 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 me, for me, and this is why Sarah and I did this, is we've got to keep Republican support so the Ukrainians have a chance to win. I mean, that's really crucial. And then we can all have long discussions in a year about, you know, how to build on that victory and how to, how to form new alliances for the 21st century and so forth. Um, and so we've started an effort, Republicans for Ukraine, uh, the ad, we did an ad that was shown during the debate. We've done the usual medley of digital stuff and billboards and other ads on television stations and some key areas, uh, just making, and, but we've done it in the way that Sarah has done the other efforts that, uh, the Republican Accountability Project and Defending Democracy Together have been have done, which is uh, Republican voters speaking to their cell phones um, and saying, "Hey, I'm a Republican, and I'm from you know Atlanta, Georgia, or something, and I'm we got to support Ukraine." And I and and those we tested this way back in 2018, 19, and really discovered that having regular people saying what they truly believe. And these are real people and you get their names and they're putting themselves on the line with some of their neighbors won't agree with them and so forth. Um, and saying either I can't vote again for Trump for a second term or saying we need to uphold the rule of law or in this case saying we need to stand with Ukraine seems to have an effect. Now, we don't have enough money to change, you know, you have to spend tens of billions of dollars, if not more, to change you know, public sentiment appreciably. But you can bolster public sentiment when it's uncertain. You can bolster members of Congress. They see, uh, they go home and there's an ad in their district and someone from their district or their state is saying this. It makes them feel less lopsided. I mean, one thing that happens is the people who go to the town halls are the Trump supporters. They are the America firsters. 
they're not the you know people who are kind of traditional republicans and think yeah we have to do the right thing here or there less so this bolsters that side of the equation so we're going to continue this effort it'll be the usual mix of paid media and earned media and so forth um we're going to focus on some key players here in september uh who seem to be sort of you know, swing players, you might say, on this on this issue and with advertising, with persuasion of other kinds. We're working with other groups, many of whom you know, too, and other individuals to do stuff privately behind the scenes as well. You know, let's make sure that people, these Republican members of Congress respect are going up and briefing them and talking to them. And, they're, and so they can't just say, oh, this is the Biden administration or this is a few never Trumpers. But in fact, there are plenty of people who serve in the Trump administration and plenty of people who voted for twice for Trump who believe you have to stick with Ukraine. And so getting those people in front of these Republican members, we're helping others do that behind the scenes. So I think it's very important. It's, as I say, this isn't the Republicans for Ukraine is not the place where we're going to have the you know, the, the full war discussion of what the deep significance of this war is for, for the next 20 years or the last 20 years and, and, and all the lessons that have to be learned. But I am struck, but I will say this, since we've had our young guys there and the young men and women at uh, Dominican Democracy Together uh, helping with all these videos, and, you know, this takes a lot of time to recruit these people, get them comfortable with doing it, telling, you know, helping them a little bit if they need some technical assistance. It's not very hard getting their approval for the ad once it's done. These people are very sincere and very, it's very impressive how many people that sort of like you're, as you were saying, driving down to, to your place there. I mean, it's, uh, these are, these are not, you know, professional foreign policy people. These are not people necessarily who served in NATO in 2017 and training Ukrainian troops. That's great too. And there are a couple like that, but mostly these are people who just are looking at this situation with Putin and Russia and Ukraine and saying, you cannot, we cannot let this stand. We cannot live in a world in which he gets away with the invasion and in which she gets away with the brutality, and in which we bug out of the largest war in Europe in 80 years and let the brutal, aggressive dictator win. I mean, that common sense attitude, uh, you know, which you could argue is a Cold War attitude and, and now a post-Cold War attitude, uh, I think is, I've been sort of heartened that it, it's out there and it's pretty strong among regular voters of both parties here in the U.S., even though it's a long way away, it's not like being, you and I discussed this, like if you go to Central Europe, I mean, Ukraine is right there, Ukrainians are right there, but, but it's, 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 it's in people's minds that they do not want to live in a world in which, and they understand the implications for China and the implications for other dictators and other aggressors. So I, I've been somewhat heartened as we put this project together. Yeah. And I mean, I, I found the ads, you know, actually in many cases, really quite moving and a great, from my point of view, antidote to uh, some of the effort on uh, the other side. I was thinking of Heritage, which has been putting money into ads saying, well, you know, Biden wants to send more money to Ukraine instead of sending it to Hawaii to deal with the wildfires, which, you know, the kind of we need to do nation building at home kind of stuff that you would have anticipated not coming from, you know, the center right Uh you know, a few years ago, but, but from the, you know, McGovernite left, as you were saying. So at, at, at a minimum, I think it, it does that. Who, who do you see as the key players on the Republican side? I mean, you mentioned McConnell and uh, Jonathan Martin had a big piece on McConnell in the, in Politico about how Senator McConnell sees it as sort of his, you know, defining kind of maybe legacy effort, at, you know, as he is moving on in years to try and preserve conservative internationalism in the Republican Party, and he's trying to bring along a you know group of younger Republican 
senators, many of whom he took with him on, you know, to Munich uh, and then beyond on, in Codels. But what other voices do you think are crucial? Obviously, you had the uh, pretty impassioned uh, comments by Nikki Haley during the debate, which I thought were great. And you had Pence and Chris Christie, both of whom have gone to Kiev, met with President Zelensky. Um, but who are the other key voices and, you know, and what voices would you like to see, you know, coming out there? I mean, so to begin with the debate, since you mentioned it, yeah, I think I, I was struck in the debate. On the one hand, you could say, as I said earlier, that 75% of the voters seem to be with the non-pro-Ukraine candidates. And I think that's true. Of course, Trump wasn't at the debate. So we didn't see him have to defend his position. Uh, but I did. Th- I thought the exchange between basically Ramaswamy and DeSantis pretty much stayed out of it. Ramaswamy on the one hand, and I guess all three of them, right, Pence, Haley, and Christie on the other, was good. I mean, that is to say, even if you aren't for Christie, Pence, and Haley, and most Republican voters at this point aren't, you had to sort of realize these were pretty serious people making pretty serious arguments. This was not the normal, you know, I'm positioning myself a little bit on one side or the other. Uh, and it wasn't, and they didn't, and they made it, in a way that was neutral on Trump, you might say. It wasn't sort of, we need to repudiate Trump and Putin and therefore support Ukraine. It was just, look, this is a foreign policy challenge, a big one. And so a couple of them, you say, have been there and, and others, I think Haley knows a fair amount about it. She was UN ambassador. And they were pretty, I thought, strong in making the case of why it's both the right thing to do and in our national interest. So I think a debate may have had a marginally good effect, actually, um, on the dynamic uh, so that's on the one hand. On the Hale McConnell, Senator McConnell has been excellent and I think has done a very good job of keeping Senate Republicans uh, solidly for it. I assume they'll get a pretty good vote in the Senate uh, for uh, Ukraine aid as part of the package, maybe as part of, of a CR that would begin in the Senate. Uh, it's going to be complicated because there'll be people who want to vote against the CR on final passage because they won't like the domestic spending or they won't like this or they want to defund, you know, God knows, the uh, special counsel or something. But it's very important if there's a vote, to sh- clean vote on Ukraine aid, which there could be, right, to strike the Ukraine aid, let's say, from the back. Very important for McConnell, I think, to be able to show, you know, 35 Republican senators standing with Ukraine. I think it has some effect over in the House. So I think the Senate's worth focusing on. I sort of, McConnell knows what he's doing and probably doesn't need much help from us, but if uh, we were in touch with them and if it turns out some senators could use some reinforcement in their states, that would be fine. In the House, you know, it's a little more complicated. The relevant committee chairs are good. So a lot of the Freedom Caucus and most aggressive Trumpy types are bad. Um, McCarthy has been straddling. Everyone assumes he doesn't, he wants to keep it going, but has doesn't want to endanger his own political future or you know, cause a huge rift in the conference on it, if possible, that's going to be very tricky for him to manage. Um, I think, but I think he's very important. And I think it's very important, honestly, if there are major Republican donors or influencers listening, listening to this, they need to, McCarthy is very important to say to him, look, you do what you want, make all the accommodations with Trump that many people like me don't like at all, a vote on domestic policy, whatever you want, start an investigation of Hunter Biden or the 15th investigation of Hunter Biden. But you cannot, this is serious. I mean, you cannot sell out Ukraine because you've got a bunch of yahoos in your conference who don't know a thing about it and don't care about it, honestly. They just want to defeat Biden on every front. You know, it's, that's not, a, they're not, I mean, I, I feel bad almost when we call them a governance. McGovern had a view of the world and of foreign policy, which he cared about. It wasn't what we agreed with. These people don't have a view of anything except, you know, that Biden's doing it, so we're against it, and plus it's an easy thing. It's a demagogue. 
think McCarthy is very important. I think Stefanik is very important. She's been a huge disappointment the last uh, seven years, really. Well, you know, you know, five years, I guess, certainly since 2018, uh, totally gone uh, in the in the tank for Trump uh, uh, in in a pretty bad way, I've got to say. But she's been pretty good on Ukraine, and I think she does the. You know, she worked with us years ago on some foreign policy stuff, and maybe some of that she still believes it or, or whatever reason. I don't think she's she hasn't stuck her neck out that, that way, but I think it would be damaging if she went in a Trumpy direction and started to really uh, come out against the aid package. So I think keeping Stefanik kind of at least neutral and, and, and non not leading the opposition is, is important practically. And then there are other members who were influential in different, obviously among different parts of the conference and different regions and so forth. It is a, but I don't think this is one where, I think this is one where if McCarthy, Scalise and Stefanik want it to happen, they may not stick their necks out. They may give people a lot of votes to make them feel better and make them look better where they don't approve of this. And we need to have much more auditing of the aid here and we have to do this and time. But I think basically uh, if they want it to happen, I think it will happen. You know, one of the things that's struck me about this has been the voices that are absent, um, you know, and, and the, you know, what I think represents a, you know, a real sad set of, of changes in the Republican Party. One, of course, is John McCain. And, and you know, we're right around the anniversary of his passing, um, you know, about five years ago. I think you can really see how much this debate misses his voice. There are other voices, though, that, you know, that are missing, you know, Ben Sass, for instance, you know, at one time, you could have counted on to, you know, make this case. Uh, Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney, you know, and uh, so a lot of those voices are just not there. And, you know, you get the sense that, you know, Mitt Romney is maybe thinking about not running again. He's certainly, you know, not out there banging a drum to raise a lot of money. He's going to have primary. I can, you know, at his age, imagine him. And I, I wouldn't, you know, at all begrudge it to him, say at my, you know, you know, age and station in life, I don't really need this anymore, you know, but it does, it does worry you that, you know, a lot of voices that one would hope would be in this debate are just for a variety of reasons now not, not there anymore. You know, one thing you hear from some of McConnell's people, I'm really interested in your view of this, is that they really would like Biden to really make the case publicly for aid to Ukraine in a way that he hasn't done. I mean, you know, he's he's made comments, you know, to reporters at gaggles coming on or off Air Force One or, you know, when he's on a bicycle ride in Delaware. But there's been no kind of concerted speech to the nation about what you were saying earlier. This is a really important point in time. Uh, you know, to some degree, the future character of international relations can be set by how this conflict comes out. Here's why we have to do it. And we can't be partisan about it. You know, I know we've got Republicans and Democrats who both want to do this and Republicans and Democrats who are opposed to it. So it's not a partisan issue. You know, you, you could, you know, I think, imagine that that it could be a very powerful speech if he if he gave it. On the other hand, I've had some people argue to me, well, you know, things are so polarized that if he makes a speech, it'll just drive, you know, some Republicans crazy and maybe get them not to vote for it. Where do you come down? I mean, my view is just fundamental presidential leadership. He needs to make that speech. Yeah, I mean, I'm inclined to be where you are. And I do think at some point we 
uh, yeah, I pay a price for not having that speech or set of speeches made or uh, by him or by other very senior people or op-eds written by jointly by former presidents, you know, Bush and Obama and whatever. And the rationale against whether it's the Bush Obama type thing or against the Biden speeches is we're so well, in the case of Biden's speeches were so polarized that it's better, honestly, if we can just get this through with bipartisan votes without making it Biden's war, but it's America's war or America's effort to help Ukraine instead of Biden's effort to help Ukraine. And I, that's good. And I, I take that point. I mean, that's just, you know, if it's better to make it uh, America's effort and if having Biden be way out front uh, is a problem, uh, fine. But, but then other people need to step up and make the case. And I think some of us have tried, but so I think that's a reasonable point of view, but then I do think there needs, to be, there needs to be someone making the case, and that gets to the other set of people, which would be your former secretaries of state, former presidents, or current ones, or recent ones, or people who don't agree on anything. The aforementioned Mike Pompeo, along with, I don't know, one of uh, Obama's, uh, President Obama's secretaries of state or so forth, not Hillary Clinton, that would be a bridge too far, but, um, you know, and, uh, uh, or national security advisors and so forth. And that there hasn't really been. And I, I don't think that probably doesn't happen spontaneously uh, unless the administration does it behind the scenes. And we, you know, you went, I remember the Cold War days. And even when I was in the White House there and, and, and with Quayle in 89 to 93, we did stuff with Democrats that didn't have George H.W. Bush's or Dan Quayle's name on it, obviously. There was a joint, joint op ed by, you know, uh, I don't know then Representative Les Aspen and there were Steve Solars as for the Democrats or then Congressman, whoever the kind of equivalent respectable Republicans were, I can't remember anymore, for the Republicans. But we helped them do it and we helped provide information and we helped, you know, push for it and so forth. These things tend to happen with executive branch uh, energy behind them. And I don't know, maybe the Biden administration is doing this incidentally. I really assume they're doing some of it. But I generally feel there's been a slight failure of... Uh, yeah, a sense that we they need to keep the country really on board on this and not just assume that uh, Putin's doing their work for them. Putin is doing a fair amount of their work for them, to be honest. I mean, Putin has been such a horrible, I mean, such a cartoon villain. It's not a cartoon if you live in Ukraine, obviously, or in Russia itself. And, um, you know, in a way, it, it's made, made it easier than it used to be to maybe rally people. Uh, but uh, again, it, it does need to be a little more of an articulation. It's certainly going into... To, to 2024, and certainly if Donald Trump's the Republican nominee, because he's going to make the case the other way, and and it wouldn't hurt for Biden to kind of prepare, lay the groundwork to make that harder for Trump to do six months from now. Do you think of something maybe that President Bush and uh, President Clinton might be able to do jointly? I mean, they've done a whole bunch of stuff on disaster relief, you know, around the world at different times. But what about? What about something as fundamental as this? I mean, it seems to me if the two of them would make some appearances, you know, supporting this, it might have a positive effect. Yeah, I think so. Now, I think among Republicans, maybe, you know, uh, just George W. Bush being a nice guy with Clinton again and stuff, maybe there it's better to have more of a, you know, recent Republican secretaries to say maybe that is more of a McMaster, Pompeo, you know, uh, John Bolton, uh, Mark Esper. Uh, right, yeah, Esper's been very Trump good, is, yeah. Yeah, the real Trumpists have problems with all those people because they didn't go along with January 6th and they didn't go along with the worst excesses of Trump. But but um, nonetheless, they have some personal connection with people on the Hill and credibility and they did serve for, with Trump and so forth. Uh, they're not, you know, associated with the Bush administration and the war in Iraq and all those terrible things. So I, I th- or not as much. So I think um, 
Uh, yeah, I'd be for any mix, any versions. There are many ways to mix and, and match these different leaders, but I do think having more of that happen. I think McConnell's tried to do some, but and maybe he can make some stuff happen here in September. But you know, having people who are not, yeah, having just the case being made. I also think, and you and I talked about this, uh, not on this podcast, but in other places. You know, I was very struck when I was in Europe more in the, when was that? So that was in the uh, late spring, early summer um, with Jeff Gedman. They, uh, they're they very good people in Europe uh, who really are terrifically leaders. A lot of them young, a lot of them from the Nordic uh, countries. You know those people very well in the Balts. Uh, Czech, new Czech president, who's not quite as young, but who, who's very impressive. Uh, just won an election, defeated a kind of Trumpy-like incumbent. And uh, he's center-right. Some of the others are more center-left. I don't think the administration's done a very good job of bringing them over and highlighting them and taking the a bit of the steam out of the typical Republican talking point of, oh, the Europeans aren't doing anything. Hey, it's not really quite true this time. There's some, there's some legitimate complaints about the Europeans, but it's not true. And again, people just have the sense that Europe is, is Germany and France, and we do have legitimate beefs to some degree with, with those two, I suppose, or France maybe. But um, but in general, I just I don't think the Biden administration has done particularly well. They haven't been terrible, but they just haven't done particularly well in sort of thinking of the public diplomacy side of this whole effort here at home and, and how, again, Europe could not just be a sort of a burden that they have to kind of defend, you know, or take say it's good that the alliance is strong, but to really make a big deal of Sweden, Finland, you know, an infinite amount about this, having been ambassador to Finland, are in NATO. And that's an achievement and it's a testimony to them and it's a testimony, sadly, to, to Putin, but a testimony to Ukraine to fight so well. Zelensky has done a lot of good public diplomacy on this personally, but I just feel there's a lot more they could do to make clear to some of those voters. I mean, the American public, to its credit, has sort of gotten this anyway so far, that these Republican voters uh, for Ukraine have kind of uh, gotten it so far. But there's probably more that could be done to make clear how big a deal this is and how important it is for the U.S. to stand firm. I agree. And your comments, Bill, I think highlight the degree to which I think the administration to, to you know, in, in some ways has uh, seemed to underplay and underestimate the information space in, in which this conflict is, is playing out. You know, last week there was this whole spate end of, you know, last weekend in the um, middle of last week, there was this whole spate of stories that appeared in the Financial Times, New York Times, the Washington Post, which basically highlighted uh, disagreements that the U.S. Department of Defense uh, has had with Ukrainian strategy and the counteroffensive isn't moving fast enough and they're not making enough use of the equipment and they're using too much artillery and this and that and the other thing. And Frank Miller and I published a piece on Friday in The Bulwark and yesterday Jack Keane, our friend, uh, had a piece uh, in a similar vein, uh, basically saying, look, none of these uh, military critics in the United States has ever had to fight the kind of fight that the Ukrainians are in. Some of the things that people have been advocating are just silly. I mean, you know, uh, David Ignatius had a column the other day in which uh, he was quoting someone as saying, well, you know, the, the Ukrainians are putting uh, too much effort into using um, UAVs for reconnaissance. They ought to have dismounted people doing reconnaissance. I, I think some of those people ought to volunteer and go over 
to be part of those human terrain reconnaissance teams walking into some of the most heavily landmined, you know, territory in the world. Uh, you know, it's it's just this kind of you know armchair quarterbacking that you know not only is it sort of offensive, I think, to the Ukrainians. So you could see some very acerbic responses from various Ukrainians. But it, it seems to me that the whole thing was undercutting their own case for the supplemental on the Hill and with the public at large. You know, it was making it seem like the Ukrainians are just, uh, you know, headed towards a stalemate. It's going to be an endless war. I mean, we, we may be headed towards a stalemate, but why would you be saying that at this, you know, at this point when it's still relatively early, you know, in the conflict. Any number of people have made the analogy to how long it took us to break out of Normandy after the D-Day invasion. You know, the, these are, you know, tough fights, as as Chairman Milley has said, this is going to be a tough fight. But they, they seem to be kind of oblivious to the, you know, to the information side of this, both here at home and, you know, internationally. I mean, Jake Sullivan ultimately had to come out and say, no, we don't think it's, you know, a stalemate right now, et cetera. But Am I the only one who thinks they're a little bit clueless in Gaza when it comes to to the information space? No, I think you're. I think that you're you're right. And some. Of, I mean, what's particularly annoying, obviously, is when their administration officials quoted on background saying this stuff. Obviously, they can't control what think tanks say and so forth, and and and, and others. And, and so some of that's inevitable, obviously. But they. But also, even if some character from some think tank says something, uh, they can push back. Now they can sometimes get others outside government to push back and, 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 and rebut some pieces. But in general, one doesn't, one does, one has the impression they think, look, they're, the war is the war. They're working very hard on it. They're making decisions. Not all of them, uh, they could do a little more in a couple of areas, but, uh, and, um, but they don't, I don't know. I mean, this is an honest question. I really don't know who's in charge of the public diplomacy side of this. I mean, is there an actual human being at the NSC or state uh, who gets up every morning and says, okay, what arguments are unfortunately making a little too much headway out there in social media or in op-ed pages or in Europe for that matter, and that we need to beat back and who can we beat back? And if it's not, you know, Jake Sullivan getting a talk, it can be, you know, getting 10 people into the white house to brief them and give them a good high quality, you know, unclassified briefing on what's happening in the war and then making sure they, you know, helping them get their, get the case out. In general, I just feel like there's been a little less of that. I mean, I'm closer to the Biden administration than I was to the Obama administration. I'm really not making this, God knows what I mean. I don't you know, need an invitation anywhere. But uh, when we supported, when I supported President Obama's uh, Afghan surge, I guess it was, or it was Libya intervention. It was some, I think it was Libya, maybe not the most, not the one that stood up the best, but whatever, in 2011 at the height of the Arab Spring. Uh, they had about 15 of us into the White House, and we were people who had been very critical of President Obama and strong McCain supporters and people associated with the Iraq War, which President Obama wasn't a big fan of. So it was a little bit, you know, fraught, you might say, in the meeting in the in the resident room. But they said, look, we, we're in this, you know, you guys are supporting, we're on the same page mostly on this, and we need to hear the arguments. And if you need any information, here's the right person to, you know, to email at the NSC. And it was all totally stuff that you and I have done a million times in regards what government does and, and what the other side would, does too. In fact, they call them their friendly people and so forth. But I, it's just funny that that's been more, I felt like there was more of that there. And certainly more of in the Clinton administration, even as Clinton was getting impeached, you know, Sandy Berger was having people in and, and, and we were agreeing that we had to, you know, help in the Balkans and support the effort in Kosovo and so forth. Um, and I don't, I, I look, I'm happy to say it regardless of whether I'm in the White House, obviously, and you are too, but, 
But I do feel like there's been a little bit of a ball being dropped here in terms of doing that. And also that across the Atlantic, I mean, there's could be everyone I talked to in Europe, they're grateful for what the Biden administration's done. They're, they're supportive. They're, they're doing their own thing there. They don't need to be told what to say. They're, they know in, in the Czech Republic or in Finland or in Lithuania what the arguments are, believe me. But I don't get the impression they're in close contact, especially, or that they're coordinating the arguments, especially when there's a NATO summit and there's kind of a moment of a two weeks of frantic activity to make sure everything is everyone's more or less on the same page. But so I do think on the diplomacy side, they could they could do more. I mean, I think to be fair, the Biden administration's allies in other policy areas would say the same thing. You know that you know he's he's got pretty good economic performance here after a pandemic and everything else. Inflation's coming down and like. Who's making that case? You know, I mean, they, they presented a pretty serious banking crisis pretty effectively, I've got to say, is my sense. And I've talked to a couple of economists who say this. And, you know, I don't know. Does anyone give Biden administration Janet Yellen credit for the fact that it looked like we might have a major bank run and we haven't? And in fact, you know, the situation is pretty stable and no one even remembers quite what happened with Silicon Valley Bank and First National. It's an administration that's not very good at the making its own case side of things. And they've kind of gotten away with it on Ukraine so far, as I say, because Zelensky's so admirable and the Ukrainians are so admirable and Putin's so horrible. But I, I wish, we could, I think we need a little more effort here in the next couple of months and then in the next year. You know, you mentioned the Europeans. One of the things that, you know, I hear from European colleagues, um, and it's begun to pop up a bit in the U.S. press as well, is their concern about what's going on in the things we've been talking about, the Republican debate, the potential for Trump to be the nominee again, and, you know, the the non-trivial possibility that he could actually, you know, win the election in, in 24. And then, you know, what happens to Ukraine policy, you know, then. It's interesting in that context that you now start, just in the last few days, have started to see reports about Europeans looking to try and make long-term commitments to the Ukrainians and get a lot, you know, kind of center of gravity inside NATO among European countries to make long-term commitments to Ukraine so that Putin can't just count on, you know, playing, you know, running, running the, you know, running things out until the U.S. election in the hope that Trump, you know, wins and then, you know, sort of saves him from the kind of, you know, morass he's gotten himself into. I mean, the degree to which just on that, I know we have to go in a minute. I mean, the degree to which Tr- Putin's strategy is hang on until Trump might win is understated. And we all probably need to say that more often. This is not like an, it's not like Putin's fighting a war. And one of the 15 things that could happen, this one would be something good for him, would be that Trump might win in 2020, get nominated first and then win in 2024. That's like the number one thing that would be good for him. And it's the one number one thing he's counting on. And I think he's going to desperately hang on until uh, it's clear that Trump won't win or hasn't won in, in November 24. Uh, that's his, best way out of this. And incidentally, what it says about the possibility, I was talking to someone yesterday who was very involved in some of the stuff in 2016 on Russian disinformation. What it's, when this much is at stake for what for Putin, I mean, it, it could make 2016 look like nothing in terms of Russian disinformation and Russian meddling in the election. And, you know, I mean, I, I because his own regime, maybe his own rule may be at stake almost 
on our election. So what does he do? We see what he does in, with, with domestic opponents and in Europe and elsewhere. Uh, we saw what he did in 2016. I mean, this is much more uh, existential crisis for Putin. So, but again, I think focusing a little more people's attention on the fact that it's not just Trump 2024 sort of an accidental sidebar story. It's really crucial in terms of the actual fate of Ukraine and certainly in terms of Putin's strategy. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Now, of course, the one of the major instruments Putin used to interfere in the 2016 election was the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg, several of whose employees were indicted by, by Bob Mueller as a result of the Mueller investigation. That property seems to be like, you know, up for up for grabs now among the various retainers uh, around around Putin uh, with the, you know, the death uh, this past week of Yevgeny you know, Prigozhin. Not clear whether, you know, that instrument will be used or whether there'll be others, but he's got others like the GRU that he can use as well. So he's got a bunch of arrows in his quiver to interfere in our election. And I'm, I'm sure he will be doing that. I mean, CNN had a story recently about how the Russians are trying to infiltrate, you know, Russian talking points into Western, what, what used to be called useful idiots. I think actually Mona Charon wrote an excellent book some years ago about that it needs to be, I've joked with Mona that it needs to be updated. You know, um, I, I've also said that I thought Vivek Ramaswamy is actually a new category, which is useless idiot, but that's a, that's another story. You know, I've been very critical of the Biden administration, as has Elliot on this podcast, for being very slow to get certain uh, systems to the Ukrainians, for being dragged in the wake of the Europeans on multiple occasions for getting things to them. I, I, I do want to say, I, you know, I got the sense from talking to some people inside the Biden administration in the last week, they may be very close uh, to uh, making a positive decision to give the Ukrainians, the M26 rocket launched cluster munition, which would be launched from HIMARS, which would extend the the range of the cluster munitions, which the ones that they've already gotten uh, have had a, a huge effect on the battlefield already in, in helping uh, the Ukrainians push through Russian defenses. Some of that has been visible um, uh, in in the area around Robotinia, where, where the... Um, Ukrainians have uh, made a, a bit of a minor breakthrough through the first line of defense uh, in recent days. Um, Attackums, you know, I think, which is the next big thing, is still, you know, sort of uh, up in the air. I mean, I, I'm sort of reminded, I'm, I wonder if you agree, Bill, of Churchill's comment. You know, the Biden administration is like his description of the United States of America. It sort of ultimately does the right thing after systematically eliminating every other option. Yeah, I mean, no, I think that gets well, well said by Churchill and, and <laughs> well applied, well applied by you. I mean, a little unfair, maybe, but but I think certainly the, several of these weapon systems they just didn't do, and now they're doing, and there was no price. It turns out there was no reason not to have done it three or six and nine months before, and a lot of you know, unfortunately, lives were lost and and time was squandered in not being able to do things. It does seem like now with the seeming beginnings of breakthrough in a couple of places in the lines. Would certainly be the time to to get both the I guess the cluster munitions that can be launched at a greater distance that you were describing, and then the attackums, which everyone says would be very important for uh, uh, it, for this offensive as well. And I mean, they really need to go for it. I mean, they, they've all the arguments about Putin, red lines and stuff seem not to be true, and um, 
I, I just can't see that we have a lot of the stuff sitting around. Some of the stuff we should have resupplied much. We, we should have built much more of over the last year and gotten our defense industrial base going again, as you've made this argument repeatedly. But in the particular things, if I'm not mistaken, that we're talking about, they have, we have a lot of it. And, and, uh, and the big joke, you've made this comment, I think uh, others have, Fred Kagan and many others. I mean, what's kind of crazy about the reluctance to do it is, why do we get all these weapons? We got all those weapons because in the unlikely event, but possible event, that there'd be a huge ground war in Europe. That's what these weapons are for. They're not really very useful, most of them in the Middle East, I don't think. And uh, they're not, uh, well, in Asia, I don't think we're going to be fighting a ground war with HIMARSes, you know. I, I mean, maybe we will, but it doesn't sound like that's terribly likely. So um, these are for the unlikely event of fighting a big land war in Europe. We're fighting the largest land war in Europe in 80 years. I mean, they're fighting it. Yeah. Thank God we're not. The European Ukrainians are fighting it. What exactly. are we saving these for? You no, know? absolutely. I mean, we're going to have them in some garage, you know, in some, in some hangar. In well, they're going to sell 40 attackums. They're going to, they're going to sell 40 attackums to Morocco. So yeah, there you go. I mean, no, it's crazy. I, and it gives away one of the best talking points that they have to push back on this America first, you know, send the money to Hawaii, you know, et cetera, instead of Ukraine, you know, for essentially 3%. And this is something Lindsey Graham actually said after coming out of Ukraine recently for 3% of the defense budget of the United States, which what, what we've spent so far on this effort, we've destroyed 50% of Russia's combat power, according to the British chief of defense testifying in front of the House of Commons Defense Committee. That's the greatest bargain, you know, since Lend-Lease. Yeah, no, I know. And, and yeah, and also if people say, well, we're wasting all this money on defense, they buy all these weapons you never use. Obviously, it's not a reason to use them that people are to prove that you're, you know, need to have a high defense budget. But this is the moment. This is exactly what these weapons are designed for, this kind of land conflict. Hopefully, it's not going to happen too many times, you know, in, in, in our lifetime or even after our lifetime. You know, these things, thank God, these wars don't happen every three years at this scale. Now it's happening at scale. And I think this is where the Biden administration, they sort of understand. I mean, of course, they kind of understand that they're not fools and they're doing a lot of good things and uh, they're coming to grips with it. But I just feel they haven't quite internalized sort of that this is not like your typical, we do this here, move this chess piece over here, but got to be a little careful. But this this is really at a different level and, and requires almost a different kind of, kind of thinking than the normal uh, you know, diplomatic and political military efforts that, that we've all engaged in in government and that they're engaging in and, and which are good. But but this is a little different. I agree. As Elliot has said, they think they can titrate out this stuff and calibrate this. And, I'm, you know, I, I just don't think, you know, war operates on that kind of a, you know, kind of a timetable. Our guest today has been Bill Crystal. Bill, thank you for joining us on uh, Shield of the Republic. It's been great, uh, great having you. Best of luck to you and Sarah in the efforts for Republicans for for Ukraine. I, I encourage uh, our listeners to think about uh, doing one of the uh, ads for, for you all. Um, I think that would be a great contribution to this, uh, this debate. And uh, we'll have to have you back um, in a couple of months to take the temperature and see how we're doing after the Reagan library debate, we'll see how much of the spirit of Ronald Reagan is still alive in the contemporary GOP. Well, let's, let's hope it's alive and let's hope that after, like, that's September 27th and then September 30th would be the usual time the CR would get passed. So let's hope that we're in a cheerful mood and we can do it again 
in October and November. Thanks, Eric. It's been great, as always, talking with you.